Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, our second episode on gardens and green spaces of New York City, getting us primed for the Garden Conservancy's inaugural Garden Futures Summit, being held at the New York Botanical Gardens on September 29th and at gardens across the city on September 30th. This week, we head to the High Line, one of the city's green space highlights, in conversation with Richard Hayden, director of horticulture there. A horticulture and public garden enthusiast, Richard is all about connecting people with the power of plants, from early work in New York to professional horticulture in California, and then back to work in New York on the High Line, beginning in 2022. Richard, it is such a pleasure to have you joining me here today. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Hi, Jennifer. I'm really honored to be here with you today. Uh, Well, so when people ask you to introduce yourself and maybe include in this the importance of plants or the role that plants play in your life, what would you say? Well, I'm always interested in people's origin stories, and I think we can learn a lot from the journeys that different people take to get to this field of horticulture that we do. I think Mm -hmm. uh, I am one of the people that came to it as a second career. Many people have. Many of my staff here at the High Line are kind of uh, second career looking to get their hands dirty, be with plants, understanding that, you know, that's really where their happy place is. So for me, I grew up in Michigan, and I grew up in a house that my great-great-grandfather had built in the 1870s, and there was a big pear tree in the backyard, Mm. and there was a sour cherry tree, and there was a big vegetable garden, and I used to get paid a a quarter, no, I got paid a nickel for (laughs) for every nightcrawler that I could dig up while, (laughs) while, while I was cultivating the garden. So there was always gardening going around, and my uh, great aunt lived on one side, and my grandmother was on the other, and they had special plants that they had. So lots of bee stings from stepping on the clover in the lawn. Um, And we we had a cabin in the north woods of Michigan, and there um, my aunt and my father had built this place, and we spent a lot of time in the woods. And uh, my aunt was a birder. And she had books on mushrooms and plants. And I just really got enriched and immersed in in, in nature. And I think it was, a um, for that reason, plants and nature and hiking and being in the woods has always been just really my happy place. Yeah. But okay. uh, I took a quick, quick uh, botany class at University of Michigan. And then I moved to New York City. And I became, uh, uh, worked in the film business. Um which was great for learning how to organize things. and But I didn't see many happy people. And when I moved to LA a little bit later, um, I really couldn't find a spot in the film business. And then the Rodney King riots happened. And um, we got sent home. I was actually working in a restaurant at the time. And I just had this feeling like if they're going to burn the city down, I'm going to plant a garden. And I got a wow. shovel and I put in a big vegetable garden and a patio and... Um, it was just really successful. And then somebody said, well, I could use some help with my yard. Wow. And so I did that and they knew a lot of people. And before you knew it, I was a landscape designer and went back to school at UCLA and got my certificate in garden design and horticulture. Oh my gosh. What a, what a, what a great curvy story you just like laid out for us there, Richard. And I've known you a long time. We've sat on a board almost at the same time, uh, and uh, certainly have overlapped a good bit on the West Coast. But um, I had no idea that is a fantastic germination story for becoming a gardener. And what a, what a, you know, sad, but also perfect Mm. counterpoint, because our world is burning down, and we should all be planting gardens, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the growing up in Michigan and that like beautifully firmly rooted family and place 
beginning that you had seems like such a wealth of values instilled in you that include both cultivation and conservation right and overlapping with the the wildlife because the birding plus the hiking plus the gardening like that gives such a full picture of what was important in your family absolutely i had a great uncle too who actually was instrumental in starting the Department of Natural Resources in Michigan. Mm. And he was a great outdoorsman. So there was always this idea of conservation and ecology that was part of, you know, kind of growing up. And I just kind of assumed everybody had that, that kind of background. And it's, um, it's so funny because, you know, we have a section of the High Line here, uh, right at the very southern end that is gray birch trees and feels very much like the birch woodlands of my childhood and so it's oh. really it's really fun to have that experience every time i walk outside of the high line yeah um wow and so we're we're definitely going to get to the high line you took the one botany class but you ended up in film and this to me is also kind of an interesting um pairing because it seems to me that especially doing Maybe not especially on the High Line because you have quite a few professional stops before you get to the High Line that would also include a lot of visual aesthetics and drama. And, and I, I can see where that would be a kind of sister relationship in in what draws you and compels you in this world. Well, it was interesting because I, I kind of fell into the idea of being a landscape designer. Mm -hmm. And I have to say to some early clients of mine who I'm still friendly with, I always make amends because I I had a lot more bravado than I had talent at that point. <laughs> but the interesting thing too is that it just kind of evolved. And mm -hmm. I found that I, and, and, and it goes back to being observant mm -hmm. in the woods and knowing you know, I was very much into textures and foliage color and, you know, repetition. And and so being an observant uh, person of nature made me a much better landscape designer. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that is a truth in our world in so many ways, don't you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then that came to fruition eventually because I I you know, was doing all of these landscape work. And we ended, we, uh, I ended up having a, a small firm with a couple of employees and a business partner. And we were doing a lot of swimming pool design at the end. And um, we did a big project in, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we built a giant pool. And I used to joke that we've changed the migratory habits of most of the waterfowl in Northern New Mexico. And it just <laughs> felt so, it, it was such a wonderful opportunity, but it felt so out of place. And uh, it was at that point that I decided I needed to get into doing something that was more in tune with ecology and, and where I could have more of an impact in bringing more people into understanding the importance of nature and, and plants. Yeah. And it's funny because I think that is so frequently the trajectory of a home gardener as well. This sort of love affair with plants, with the aesthetics, with the design. And it's as you age and mature in it that you all of a sudden think, wait, I also want to do this for these other lives and for these other reasons. And so you get, you kind of get expanded by the process. Is that, would, would you say that was fair? Oh, absolutely. And then mm -hmm. you start to understand the impacts of what right. you're doing. And I was fortunate to have some really smart uh, folks about California native plants in my life, Carol Bornstein and Bart O'Brien. And of course, they wrote the wonderful book, um, California Natives for, for the Garden. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I had that opportunity in 2011 to go to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles and become the head gardener for the Nature Gardens, which was a three and a half acre wildlife habitat garden that was built out of what was formerly asphalt parking lots. Right. And it was just so amazing to have all these experts, these scientists that were studying urban nature and you would find out what bird that is and what bee and fly and 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 butterfly and um and then having the opportunity to bring that excitement to the 250,000 school children that would visit every year 
I found that was really what made my heart sing. Yeah. And and to have had that formative experience on your career track at such an incredible facility who, who really, like whenever I speak about uh, the gardens, which were in my second book and and Carol very specifically, who was in my first book, uh, as well as the landscape architect on that Mia uh, mm-hmm. layer, you know, it's um, it's one of those gardens that's on the it was really on the forefront of thinking about ecological garden design and how to do it well, as well as the impact of urban gardens and what they're doing and why they're doing it well or not well. And so what a great kind of nursery as it was for your growing education. So how how long were you there before you made, because I think you had a couple of up and down on the California coast before that's, yeah. Highline called you and said, come back to New York. That's right. So I was there for five years. Wow. And, you know, it was so exciting because my eyes really opened up. We we did a lot of studying about the, the soil food web because we had to rebuild the soil that had been underneath the parking lot and make it uh, healthy so that all of the many trees and things that we were growing were going to be able to succeed. So I did a big dive into into uh, soil ecology. Um, and then, of course, learning about all the different habitat values and, and the interactions that different plants uh, play and the importance of, you know, our native oaks and our keynote, uh, keynote um, species in terms of their ability to support wildlife. It was just such a springboard. So I was there for about five years. And in 2017, I had an opportunity to move up to Palo Alto, where I became the garden director at the Gamble Garden, right. which was a historic house and, and garden in a very posh Palo Alto, uh, which is a great little college town. Stanford is there. And that was exciting. I have to say that it wasn't a natural fit for that type of um, horticulture. They had a lot of camellias and a lot of hydrangeas and rose garden and and I got to apply what I knew about um, sustainable practices to that garden, mm-hmm. as well as installing, of course, a pollinator garden, mm-hmm. and uh, and then a watershed garden later on. That was was my first homage to trying to create what I felt was like a Pete Audolf garden in California, which is still maybe something that I aspire to figure out how to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, an an interesting. Um contrast there too between what was happening at the nature gardens and then at the gamble garden because these are two very different kinds of public horticulture but both equal you know equally important in their own ways and on slightly different kind of learning curves i think in our world but again also very important and and the bringing smaller public gardens and personalized public gardens into line with a more ecological track. I think it's going to be one of the growth edges in our world. Absolutely. I think one of one of my favorite projects at the Gamble Garden was installing a rain garden off of the parking lot oh. and and populating that with all California natives. And you know, just seeing on the on the rainy days that the water would flow in and then slowly sink rather than run out to the sea. So that's kind of like uh, I'm making up for the big pool in New Mexico. Maybe. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's penance. <laughs> it's my penance in the world. And then you went back. You went back down south. I did. I spent two years at Gamble Garden, and then I got lured back to the Natural <laughs> History Museum uh, with the idea that I would. Be the project manager for the new La Brea Tar Pits Museum, which is a little, uh, little off, off my plant trajectory. Mm-hmm. There are going to be eleven acres of gardens associated with that project, and the tar pits are a wondrous, you know, collection of ice age fossils that they're still excavating. Right. But we did the master plan. We had our first meeting in February of 2020. Mm-hmm. Everyone, the architects were based in New York and they came in and we had our first meeting and then we all know what happened in March of that year. Mm-hmm. And we ended up doing uh, that 18-month master planning remotely. 
we would pull together the different teams we needed from the museum to give feedback on the master plan and it was fascinating and it and and I and I tie that ability back to my work in as a production manager in the film business because I used to say if I could produce a television commercial in New York City on location that cost a half a million dollars in one day I can probably do anything. And so, um, you know, it's, the, the, I, I tell people or young folks that are starting out, like, become a waiter because you learn all the life skills you need to know. You learn yeah. customer service, you learn um, multitasking and, you know, time management. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and those are skills I think we all use. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Richard Hayden is the director of horticulture for the High Line in New York City. A horticulture and public garden enthusiast, Richard believes firmly in the importance of connecting people with the power of plants, no matter where their place might be. We'll be right back with more from Richard about his work on this historic, elevated garden in the sky. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. We are just a few short late summer weeks away from the Garden Futures Summit, featuring lectures and discussions on Friday, September 29th by some of the leading voices in horticulture in our world today. These discussions will be held at one of New York's most famous gardens, the New York Botanical Garden. And on Saturday, September 20th, there will be visits to gardens across the city's five boroughs. Do you have your tickets? If you're headed that way, please make sure to seek me out and introduce yourself. I am looking forward to it. Hey, it's Jennifer. I'm back home in California now after two amazing weeks being on the road speaking to groups of you. To everyone I met in Maine, landscape architect Suzanne Williams cleaning up the beach in Ogunquit, Carly Glavinsky working on the planted reimagining of poet and writer May Sarton's house at Surf Point in York, Maine, the entire staff at the Coastal Maine Botanical Garden, and the sold-out audience of people who came out for the 13th annual Ina and Lewis Hafitz lecture there. Thank you. It was an immense pleasure and experience getting to know you and your landscapes just a little better. To everyone I met and who shepherded me on my two days in Cincinnati, at the University of Cincinnati, at Turner Farm who put me up, at the Civic Garden Center of Greater Cincinnati, and everyone from Cincinnati Public Radio. People I met included Brian Grubb, Horticultural Program Director at UC's College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning. Robert Edmiston at Turner Farm, Karen Cauley, Executive Director at the Civic Garden Center, Janelle Walton and her fabulous team from Cincinnati Public Radio, and everyone who came out to the two sold-out public talks at these centers for horticultural learning and community. Thank you. It is always energizing and expanding to meet you all in your places with your love of plants. In front of me, I have two densely planted weeks of events around the publication of What We Sow, next week, September 19th. 
on the evening of the publication itself, I will be in person at Mrs. Dalloway's Literary and Garden Arts Bookstore in Berkeley. But before that, on Saturday, September 16th, I will be in person at Annie's Annuals in Richmond, California. And speaking for the Friends of the Chico State Herbarium virtually on the evening of September 21st. And finally, at Copperfield's Books in Sonoma on the evening of September 22nd. For all of my many upcoming events, make sure to check out cultivatingplace.com forward slash events to see if there are any upcoming in your place. Looking forward to meeting you when and if possible. I want to close with this. Here's how I like to sign copies of what we sow for readers. It seems like a blessing worth sowing widely and often. May all that you sow continue to grow the world more delicious, more beautiful, more biodiverse, and more brave. We're back now to our conversation with Richard Hayden, Director of Horticulture at New York's high-profile Highline Gardens. As we come back, Richard shares more about the parallels between his work developing the new gardens around Los Angeles's La Brea Tar Pits and his work on New York's Highline another innovative and resourceful urban land and infrastructure reuse project. The Tar Pits is a, is a reuse project when you think about it. I yeah. mean, they were, they were traditionally pits. They're still there. And now we're reinterpreting them for a new millennia, if you will. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So after the master plan was finished, they, you know, came the hard part of, you know, looking around for funding and approaching the county. And, and so it kind of just was on hold as far as the project management went for about a year and at that time i became the deputy director at the museum and i was overseeing the nature gardens uh, and some other projects but then i just saw this this job uh, open up in new york at the high line and you know and i said to myself if i had the opportunity to do i've always believed that life begins outside my comfort zone mm. and and launching in, you know, across, because I had been in New York previously, so it wasn't that scary to think about living here. But the opportunity to to work in the piece of art that that Pete Adolf created on the High Line mm. was just too much to to pass up. And so I threw my hat in the ring. True confessions. I had actually applied back in 2015. Mm-hmm. or director of horticulture here at the High Line had seven interviews and didn't get the job. So I thought, well, let's let's throw our, our hat back in. And literally in two interviews, they hired me and I wow. packed up the car and the dog and drove across the country. Said, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. Um, that is such a great persistence success story for people to hear, Richard. I love it. I still have to pinch myself. First of all, it is... I have such an amazing team. Uh, the team of horticulturists that work here at the High Line, there's uh, 13 of them currently. Three of them are seasonal. They are so passionate about what they do. They they curate these gardens. You know, the High Line, everybody thinks, oh, the High Line, it's so naturalistic. It must be so easy to take care of. <laughs> and, you know, those of us that that do this for a living know just how carefully curated, you know, how edited, how we have to add things back in, how, you know, we have 30 foot tall trees growing in 18 inches of soil, 30 feet in the air. It's the most unnatural landscape you can possibly think of. And it is, you know, Pete was here last June. So I I started in March of 2022 and Pete came in June for his first visit in five years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And and for those of our listeners who don't know who Pete Audolf is, he is a Dutch uh, nurseryman and worked with plants for a long time in, in the Netherlands and had his own garden where he did a lot of 
exploring and different plant combinations and just became so in tuned with perennial plants, many of them from North America. Many of the prairie plants were introduced into uh, Europe before they really became popular here. And Pete had designed a few gardens, the Lurie Garden in Chicago, but the High Line was, he was hired in 2004. And it is, you know, the New York Times calls him the most famous living landscape designer and the High Line his most famous work. And it is a curated journey across a mile and a half of um, elevated, what was an elevated uh, freight line for rail. So, okay, wait. So now I'm going to stop you and let's let's backtrack just a little bit um, because I was going to ask about Pete, but you did such a great job with that. And listeners are definitely familiar with his work. We've had interviews with the filmmaker about his film and interviews with the Lurie Garden. And years ago now, we had a beautiful interview with uh, Rick Dark about the sort of inception of, of the garden and the idea for it and the development. But for listeners who aren't familiar with his its history. Take us back a little bit. What is what is the High Line? You were you were getting us there. What was it originally, and how how did it germinate as a a, a major public garden destination in the U.S.? Talk about origin stories. Uh, right. The High Line has one great one. So, in the from about eighteen fifty to nineteen thirty. The freight lines in New York City ran at street level. They ran on 10th Avenue. And 10th Avenue uh, became known as Death Avenue because so many people were being run over by the trains. And they had horsemen, they were called West Side Cowboys, and they would precede the trains and try to warn people. But but little kids were playing in the trains, and it just was was an awful situation to the point where in the middle of the Depression in 1930, they raised the funds to build this, I think it was almost two miles, uh, elevated 30 feet in the air, capable of having two trains pass by each other. And it brought in all the raw materials to this part of New York City where the meat packers were, where the groceries were, where we have a, a, a building called the Chelsea Market that used to be the Nabisco which stands for the National Biscuit Company. Mm. So, so all the flour and the cocoa and the eggs and the milk would come in and the Oreos would go out. And so it was a lifeline until the 70s when, of course, there were such great you know highways built everywhere and uh, trucks were way more efficient. And so the last um, freight train on the High Line was 1980 and it was a supposedly a uh, boxcar full of frozen turkeys at Thanksgiving time. Oh, wow. And then it sat for another 18 years without anybody really understanding what was there. And it was under the Giuliani administration they were going to tear it down. But the cost of tearing it down was hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there were community organizations that were having meetings about it. And our two founders, Robert Hammond and Josh David, met at a community meeting and said, well, we're really interested in figuring out what this could be because they had gotten up on the High Line and seen that it had evolved into this miraculous self-seeded landscape. And uh, if anyone is interested, they can go on the website for thehighline.org and look at the original. They were very smart, Robert and Josh, and they hired an art photographer, uh, Joel Sternfeld, and he made the most beautiful photographs of this wild self-seeded landscape. And they would put those up at the meetings they would have trying to get people interested in organizing. And that's when Friends of the High Line was formed. Those pictures of that wildscape, that, you know, um, an organically seeded, rewilded space in this very urban, on this very urban structure in a very urban environment, uh, was miraculous. And those those pictures are so evocative. And and uh, they talk quite a bit about that in that early book about the, the gardens, the gardens of the High Line. So they are successful and keep us going in, until where we are now. Yeah. Right. So they um, marshaled together a group, the Friends of the High Line, and they had a competition where they solicited ideas for what the High Line could become. Uh, I think one of the most 
uh, fanciful ones was that it was going to be this mile and a half long roller coaster. Hmm. Uh, there's another one that suggested it should be a lap pool. Um, <laughs> but they, when they finally got serious, they had three rather um, famous landscape architects slash architecture firms get together and and make proposals. And uh, James Corner Field Operation and Diller Scofidio and Renfro mm -hmm. were the two design teams that were tasked with with making the realization of the Highline come to life. And they were the ones who designed this beautiful hardscape and took up the rails. And then, you know, we had to deal with all sorts of uh, lead paint, remediation, pour a new concrete slab. So basically the Highline is an 18 inch deep and we're back to the image of the swimming pool. It's like it's like a swimming pool with drains, um, so that um, the water is directed, the storm water, and things are directed. And then they hired Pete. They had the really smart idea of hiring Pete, who came in and they decided together to make this scripted journey. And the and the different garden areas were designed based on the conditions that were found there. Mm -hmm. So at the very southern end, where there's it's kind of windy and open. They did a grassland where it's a little bit more like a canyon. They had uh, trees that were growing there. There were tree of heaven, alianthus trees. And so they honored that by making that the, the flyover spot where you can walk up into the canopy and experience big leaf maples or big leaf magnolias and, um, and sassafras trees. And nice. so it was really interesting the way that it, it all evolves. Mm-hmm. And so it opened to the public, that first stretch that was complete. Remind me of the year? 2009. 2009. You came on in 2022. So it is now, you know, a mature successional garden. like thing. And yeah. you already referred to this, that, you know, it might look like very little is being done, but there is a whole whole lot being done in order for it to look like not much is being done. How has the garden aged? How is it evolving? And then we'll talk a little bit more about the vision for what it will be as it continues to, to grow and evolve. But tell us first a little bit about how it has changed, matured, and perhaps some of the um, the work behind making it look effortless. Well, I think the the one word I'm going to pull out of what you just said is evolved, because mm -hmm. it really is, and that's Pete's vision as well. He keeps talking about the evolution of the garden. He doesn't mm -hmm. he doesn't come and say, "Oh, we have to get back to the original landscape I designed," because he knows that, and if people have been to the Highline, they know they changed the zoning around the Highline in order to bring in more development, and that the Highline would kind of you know, juice that whole system so that they could revitalize this section of, of Manhattan that, you know, was warehouses that weren't really getting used and there wasn't a lot going on over here. And now we have all these very fancy architectural buildings and condos and 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 high rises and it's changed the light on the high line, it's changed the wind, uh, it's changed the access of birds and butterflies to get to the high line. So they're it is consistently uh, evolving. And, you know, um, Pete's vision is so spectacular for the way he he designs for all the seasons, right? So, and I think that was the big thing that really the Highline, I like to call the Highline probably the most important public garden of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Because it changed the way we think about gardens and the way we think about seasonality, especially here on the East Coast. I mean, when I was in California, we didn't, we didn't, I, re I remember when I, when I went to Gamble Garden, they said, well, what is your plans for putting the garden to bed? Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't know what that means. <laughs> right? we, we live in California. We don't That's put right. the gardens to bed. Right. And, uh, but that was a very East Coast idea, right? That we yep. used to, in in September, we would cut everything back and uh, mulch put, and mulch, yeah. and we would put the little covers on the ewes so they don't get the salt burn and hunker <laughs> down. And uh, and thankfully, Pete came along and said, "No, wait. You know, we can choose plants that. Yes, they have beautiful blooms in August or beautiful blooms in June, but they also have these gorgeous seed heads, and the foliage turns 
amazing colors and you combine those together and then you know we have the skeletons of the skis ski i can say this seed heads that stay up all winter and then they have interactions with the dusting of snow and so you get this four season garden and i think you know pete was visionary in bringing that idea and then the use of ornamental grasses and and yeah. um, many native plants actually i think were also important yeah yeah okay so Tell us a little bit about your team and, you know, a day in the life of one of the on-the-ground gardeners in one section of the garden in late summer. Sure. So one of the changes I actually made was to change their title from gardener to horticulturalist. And we did this in L.A. because I think in California, we often associate gardeners with lawn custodians. Uh, and horticulturalists are the people that have the skills to understand how plants grow and really know how to take care of them. So I wanted to honor uh, the profession of the folks that worked on the High Line and give them the title of horticulturalist, which is a mouthful. And I'm not sure the marketing department loves it, but whatever. So there are currently 10 zones, uh, 10 different gardens that each horticulturalist is assigned a section. And you could be, if you're working in 30th Street, which is the very northern end, you, you're a long way from headquarters where most of the equipment and tools and things like that are. So you're spending quite a bit of time commuting. can take about 20 minutes to get up there. And we start at 6.30 in the morning because we need to, we open at 7 and we do a walkthrough of the garden beds and make sure that uh, everything is clean and neat uh, and tidy. And then uh, we get down to work. A lot of uh, the work that we do there's a lot of weeding. We're so lucky this year to have such consistent rains. It's made it's made really life so much easier to know that there's a little bit of consistent moisture. We have an irrigation system for the whole park, but that's it kind of aging out and we need to upgrade our technology for that to get mm -hmm. more efficient. And then we do there are areas that need to be hand watered. We have this this design element called tapers that come off of the hardscaping into the beds, these like little fingers or they look almost like piano keys. And there's planting in between those that do not have irrigation. So those need to be hand watered. A lot of the work of the horticulturalist is managing. So to be chosen to be a plant on the high line, you have to have a certain amount of moxie. You have to <laughs> often be you know, successful in, in kind of holding your place and, right. and maybe taking, you know, we have a lot of mountain mints, for instance, that are very aggressive mints like to spread. Yes. We have some grasses that recede quite a bit. So we spend a lot of time managing those. We'll pull them back. We'll cut them back. Um, we'll manage and we'll dig and divide certain plants, not so much this time of year, but it's one of the things we do. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Richard Hayden is the director of horticulture for New York City's High Line. By 2022, gardeners on the High Line had identified 34 species of native bees in the gardens, proving that any urban garden can be an important contributor to the survival of wildlife and serve as a connector between the more wild spaces around them. We'll be right back for more with Richard. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So while I was in Cincinnati, I was in conversation with DJ Trisler, a man attending my talk at the University of Cincinnati. He asked me what I thought about branded gardens, the term he used for gardens that are high profile. The example he cited, interestingly enough, was the High Line. He was wondering about the long-term impacts, socially, economically, and environmentally, from such high-profile destination gardens to the neighborhoods in which they sit and grow. 
In terms of the High Line itself, he was wondering about what has happened since its time as a working railway, to its neglect and disuse, to its transformation and enormous success, now being, as people say, an icon of American postmodern landscape design. Also, interestingly, I recently came across social media posts noting people's inevitable sadness, or if not sadness, at least ambivalence, about what has been lost in the wake of the Highline's success. And perhaps this is true of other big garden projects in cities around the world. Speaking specifically about the Highline, what has been gained is a beautiful and accessible organically tended public green space. What has been gained includes horticultural care and maintenance leadership and education being offered out as models to cities everywhere. And certainly another gain has been an enormous economic driver for the city and the areas of the city the garden touches. But what has been lost? the quiet and more affordable housing previously adjacent to the garden, the unique and interesting personality of the neighborhoods adjacent to the High Line previously, even some of the distinct nature of the self-seeded site and hand-in-hand human artistry of the graffiti that used to enliven the environs has changed. So while carbon capture and urban heat island effects have been created, other things, maybe slightly less tangible things, have been lost. Change is inevitable and cyclical in any human community. But is the pressure of what we can really only call gentrification alongside gardens of these kinds the garden's fault? I would argue no. I would also argue that in city planning around gardens of such prominence and such budgeting, these kinds of consequences should be considered and perhaps planned for by all of the stakeholders involved in their development. How? Well, seeing these kinds of human migration patterns and exclusions or pressures around sites like the High Line, I think we as a horticultural community need to work much more diligently in advance on much more robust city planning, land use, and housing protections policies that, like the best public gardens themselves, make any city more humane and authentically flourishing and livable. These are garden lessons to learn from for the long term in the biggest thinking. Thank you for the insightful question, DJ Trisler. And if you all have thoughts on things like this, I would love to hear yours. You know how to reach me. Send me an email cultivatingplace at gmail.com. We're back now to our conversation with Richard Hayden, Director of Horticulture at New York's Highline Gardens. As we come back, Richard talks more about the recurring seasonal tasks of gardening on the Highline, including the replacement of perennial plants, shrubs, and trees who've outgrown their spaces or the changing conditions on this elevated, deeply urban green space going on its 15 year since opening to the public. Perennials don't live forever. And so in some sections of the garden, we're 15 years old. And so we're always, you know, adding things back in to keep a certain balance. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that Pete helps us with. He was here, I said, uh, last June, year Mm -hmm. ago, June, and just such a humble man and wanted to, we walked the High Line and met with each horticulturalist in their zone. And we talked about the challenges, what was working, what wasn't working. And, and then we, you know, he made, um, 
suggestions for plants that they could try. And then we emailed him the notes so that he could noodle on them a little bit. And he emailed us back some additional information. And I have to say, so I'm from California. And I had to spend, I was so nervous to meet Pete. <laughs> I, you know, and I worked in Hollywood. I had some famous people that I had done gardens for. Right. And that was fine. But Pete... Yeah, And so I knew I wasn't going to know these plants. I, there was just no way that in the eight weeks that I'd been here, I was going to get up to speed on the 500 right. species of plants. So I just, I had to be comfortable in saying, you know, I don't know what that is, but we'll, we'll research and we'll, but it was just really interesting to get back to um, the way that he approached everything was, what does it want to become? The thoughtfulness and depth of that question, what does that want to become? And is this the right space for it to become that? Like, that is such a powerful question for each of us to ask of our plants in our gardens, right? And of ourselves in our gardens in many ways. Absolutely. I was just going to add to, to finish the story of a day in yeah. the life of a gardener. Yeah. So hand watering, weeding, planting, Yeah. you know, trimming things back, studying, you know, making making notes and keeping keeping data on you know different things um but the other thing that we do uh is that we have to manage the people that are on the high line i was going to ask this question yeah it's a big you know it's i want to say the second most visited uh attraction in new york city next to central park and um i were in 2019 we were at eight and a half million people visiting so if you are on the High Line much past 10, 10 in the morning, it gets rather busy. So the staff works until about noon, and then they come in for lunch, and then we work on data collection. We work on, um, we do some interpretation work. We're doing more work around, we have a horticulture celebration going on right now that's celebrating New York City native plants. Mm -hmm. And so we're working on next year's uh, horticulture celebration. So there's lots of other work that we do in terms of getting ready to, uh, and that's the advantage of having eight and a half million people is we have big panels up in the 14th street passage that talk about New York city native plants. Each of the horticulturalists has a picture and a, and a quote about what the native plants mean to them in their section. And, mm. and so we have this opportunity to represent this kind of horticulture Talk about the biodiversity that visits and why these plants are important for that. And hopefully we have a chance to reach, you know, some of these people and get them thinking about that for their own gardens. Yeah. Wherever they might be. Exactly. Yeah. This is a global destination. And the importance of being able to see it being successful, these rough and tumble plants, but sometimes very delicate plants all working together on this just unlikely or in our minds unlikely site is such a triumph of transformation for the generative in our life absolutely in fact one of the things i've been tasked with is putting together kind of a four-year plan mm -hmm. and you know our trees our birch trees especially down here at the southern end in the gansevoort woodland that are 20 or so feet tall were planted in 2009 and they may have been five, six, seven years old at that time. And so birches are, you know, pioneer trees. They don't live that long. They grow fast. So we have to make a plan for how we're going to continue to have birches. And so we're leaving birch sprouts. Um, we're making a plan this year to probably selectively, a few have died, you know, mm -hmm. they're kind of multi-trunked. Yep. And so like one will die and we'll cut that down, but we're leaving a little space for sunlight to come in. And we did a big, one of the huge, huge work we did over the winter was uh, to hire some very um, artful tree pruners to come in. And they spent 13 days going through all the trees and shrubs. Because during COVID, we'd really gotten a little bit behind here on the High Line. We had three or four months during 2020 when there was no work on the High Line. And it's amazing how in the spring of a year, oh, yeah. when you're not managing, you're not doing cutback, uh, the weeds uh, kind of are getting out of control. It's amazing how long it takes to kind of get back to square one after that. Wow. That's a lot of trees. But to be such an act, I mean, I think 
Many gardeners are that active and certainly public gardens, but you have to be even that much more actively considering the succession of these spaces and how plants, you know, live and die and get regenerated or or renewed with something else um, because of the constraints of the human uh, built infrastructure that it's on, you know, very, very different than a Central Park and so innovative, but so, so much a collaboration between humans and plants in an even more intense way than a normal, like, you know, normal soil-based garden. Um, yeah, really interesting. You know what, what I have to say that when I first started, I literally was freaked out <laughs> over the fact that these tall trees are growing in 18 inches of soil. Right. And I'm thinking, how is this even possible that they're surviving? And not only are they surviving, but there's a shrub level and there's this amazing ground cover level, you know, with all of Pete's wonderful textures. And then I was, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have some friends in, in Northwestern Connecticut. And I go up there on the weekend sometimes. And I was hiking in the Adirondacks on the, Adir on the Appalachian Trail. And there had been a windstorm and these trees had blown over and lo and behold, they're growing in 18 inches of soil because of all the rocks that were deposited by the glaciers. So the, there's this forest ecology in you know the Northeast that's very much 18 inches or 20 inches or whatever. And these trees and this whole forest is growing in that. And so it, it was this aha moment of like, oh, you can relax, Richard. Right. Actually, they they know how to do this. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. And they know so much more than we think. And that lesson of adaptability and kind of working it out together uh, for, for, you know, whether it's competition or collaboration or, or some beautiful uh, combination of both uh, is is one of the greatest lessons of, of being in a garden and um, being a gardener. And I can't wait to see it in person, Richard, because I'm going to be there at the end of September uh, for the Garden Conservancy, and I've never seen it in person. So speaking of seasonality, give us a little like visual of what should be still blooming, what should be the great seed heads, what will the colors look like on the trees in late September? Mm, I have to say... Fall is probably my favorite time on the High Line. And I think part of that is having spent 30 years in Los Angeles, where the trees don't get around to turning color until Christmas. You right. Know, <laughs> the liquid amber trees in, in uh, Los Angeles turn fall colors right around Christmas. And so, you know, I really, you know, having grown up in Michigan and seeing the maple forests and all of that do their incredible fall color, it was really great to get back to that in New York. And Pete is such a master of that. So you have, you know, grasses that are bronzing and, and browning in different colors. You know, one of his favorite plants is um, thread-leafed blue star, mm -hmm. Amsonia hubrechtii, which yep. is, you know, this Arkansas native that uh, has such great, you know, ferny texture, but at the same time turns a brilliant golden color in the fall and is, looks great with asters such a great gold purple mm. combination the sassafras I, I have such respect for that tree now we have it growing in several different spots and it is probably the the best fall color tree we also have uh, uh nissa savatica which is um black tupelo great fall color we've got smoke bush the birches go gold and um and the other thing too that happens on the Highline that is so amazing that I think we lose track of in the garden world is there's always a sense of movement. There's always a breeze. There's always a gentle, well, sometimes not so gentle, but often gentle swaying of the grasses and the tree branches. And it gives you this lulling into this sense of nature if you have an opportunity to enjoy it. And so there will be great asters blooming. We have many different... Uh, varieties of aster uh, and goldenrods. Um, and so this, the fall, it's going to be spectacular. I can't wait for you to see it, Jennifer. Me too. Well, and I love the uh, fact that the High Line is included in the new book by Nachman No on the different green spaces of New York City 
all the five boroughs in, included. And I think much needed focus on the importance of urban green spaces for both humans and ecological reintegration um, just can't really be overstated, especially after our the five years we've had. This importance, I hope, will not recede anytime soon. Absolutely. It's Gardens need to be, to, to, to use a Mia Lair term, gardens need to be performative now. They mm -hmm. need to be places where, you know, people get engaged with nature, where wildlife and uh, pollinators can find a home, and they need to provide shade. They need to provide opportunities for people to, you know, breathe fresh oxygen. And um, so it's more than just a, a pretty place to look at plants it's it's you know all of the studies they've done around about um the biome of forests mm -hmm. and the benefits in terms of you know calmness and concentration that 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 uh, biome can bring i think that's really what nature is for all of us mm -hmm. yeah now you you mentioned this and uh it is a famous destination at this point and so the human pressure on the high line can be pretty significant i i have heard uh so tell us again your hours and when you would recommend people get out on the garden so that maybe it's not quite as uh high pitched with people uh unless that's what they're looking for <laughs> That's good information to have. So we <laughs> we are open. Our summer hours are seven to ten p.m. Um, and in the winter, I think sometime in October, maybe we sh we shift to seven to seven seven a.m. Mm -hmm. to seven p.m. Um, we do have a large section of the High Line, which we're calling the Rail Yard Preserve, which goes from Thirtieth and Eleventh Avenue all the way kind of along the Hudson up to Thirty Fourth Street, that is currently closed. And that's because its walkway has disintegrated and we're going to replace the walkway. But that's a really important section, I think, for people to see because it is still the self-seated landscape. It is not a landscape that was designed or installed. And so it's great to see the, the, the diversity of what that feels like and then come to the Highline Gardens and, and kind of experience Pete's vision of, of what gardens can be. And if people want to visit, 7 to 9 a.m. It's it's magical on the Highline. You get to watch the sunrise. You get mostly it's a neighborhood. We get some joggers and some people commuting and, and nannies taking children to school. And um, it's funny. A lot of the horticulturalists are very familiar with some of our neighbors who use the Highline early in the morning. So it's, it's very much a, a, a morning kind of garden. But I would also add in the evenings, after 7 p.m., the 7 to 10 p.m. slot is magical as well. All the lighting is designed to be very low and lights the pathway, but not. So you really get to experience the city from a different perspective in the evenings as well. Good, good, good. So as we come to the end, and you've mentioned a lot of plants, but you also are a person who has grown plants in some very diverse situations from Michigan to Los Angeles to Palo Alto to uh, high elevation New York City. If you, if you were going to live on a desert island and you only had five plants to grow or design with for the rest of time, what would those five plants be, Richard, and why? Oh my gosh, this is torture. This is just pure torture to any plant person. And you know, if you asked Pete that question, he would he would he has a favorite plant of the month. Okay, so oh gosh. Well, I think I would have to have an oak tree. Yep. You know, and I think I think a coast life oak, just because mm. it could be really hot and sunny on that desert island. And so I would want I would want shade year round and um some oak some acorns you know there's a salvia in california that i'm just crazy about called alan chickering oh yeah it's a cross between purple sage and blue sage naturally occurring cross and it has a fragrance mm. that's just it's minty and sagey and um it just reminds me of california and and the flowers are this incredible uh color of blue and it's one of those unusual plants where the birds 
and the bees, the hummingbirds, and the bees and the butterflies will all visit the flowers. So it's a real high-impact habitat plant. And of course, very doesn't need much water to survive. I think I think I would have to have a milkweed, and I would probably choose purple milkweed, which is oh. a, one of the one of the Asclepias purpurescens. We have it on the High Line in the 10th Avenue area. It's a beautiful flower. Um, you know, this half ball of of purple flowers. Um, but in true peat fashion, I'm really crazy about the seed pods. They're these really sinuous, sexy seed pods that turn kind of a uh, a bronzy purple color. Um, so it really just has year-round interest. And of course, milkweeds being, you know, the um, the plant that uh, the endangered uh, monarch butterflies need in order to lay their eggs. It's milkweeds are the only plants that uh, monarchs will lay their eggs on. So we're super wanting to highlight those plants. I'm crazy about service berries, June berries, mm-hmm. shadbush, one of those native natives that has so many different names, but uh, Amelanchier. They just are the beautiful spring blossoms, um, great fall color. And of course, uh, berries in June that are really delicious and edible. We have many of them on the High Line. And when Pete was here for his visit, we picked some and he enjoyed them with his very sour European yogurt and um, (laughs) June berries. And he was thrilled. So I would have to choose maybe a service berry. Okay. Are we at four or five? I think you have one more. We're at four. I think I would need... I think I would need a cherry tomato, frankly. I'm so crazy about. <laughs> I think I might choose. I think that's a, perfect. That's the perfect a, garden you just made. A sun sugar cherry tomato because okay. they're just little bites of sunshine. So. They really, really are. Okay, and and have you ever experienced the fact that uh, the milkweed pods are edible? This I did not know. Well, so, and I would, okay, so a a fair warning, like big warning to anyone who's listening, because I'm not sure every species Mm -hmm. of Asclepius is, but we had a fantastic conversation with Aaron Presley out of the Old Brick Mm. Botanical Gardens in Wisconsin. And she had this wonderful, um, and I'm forgetting the name of her cohort, uh, a Native American woman who helped her develop uh, a Ho-Chunk sort of inspired garden there at Olbrick and they had an open day where they made um milkweed pod soup. Wow. Right. So the young, young pods uh, were what they boiled and, and ate sort of, I I would guess it was a little bit like an okra. Which I'm not crazy about unless it's deep fried. Well, or pickled is good too. But, um, but yeah, I'm just guessing that the, the, but I don't know. So anyway, I just, I thought, I I found that fascinating. And of course, we have so many native ones in California that I was like, wow, I wonder, I, I should find out more. And I um, love the fact that you chose one of the California native salvias. Can you grow it there, Richard? No. 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 Okay. No, we have a couple of salvias on the high line, but um, I don't think they're native. They're European meadow sedges, sage, mm-hmm. and... Um, Salvia Azur, I think. Oh, it has been such a pleasure to catch up with you. And I am just so happy about your work there. I, I just, mm, I can't wait to see you and see, see the High Line. And I hope everybody gets a chance to visit at some point. Well, it has been spectacular to have this opportunity to talk with you. And I feel like this is the appetizer course. Kind of, right? And we'll devour the main course when I get to walk on the highway with you. Richard Hayden is the director of horticulture for the Friends of the High Line. Friends of the High Line raises nearly 100% of the High Line's annual budget. Owned by the City of New York, the High Line is a public park programmed, maintained, and operated by Friends of the High Line in partnership with the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. As Richard notes about this park in the sky, Experiencing the High Line is a carefully planned and composed journey. Each garden purposefully blends and contrasts with the next to evoke different emotional experiences. That seems like a great goal for any garden. Join us again next week when 
two days after the official publication date of my newest book, What We Sow, we have a treat for you. Scientist, science educator, and communicator, nature and popular culture lover, Dave Schlom, host of NSPR's Blue Dot, is our host this week on Cultivating Place, turning the potting tables, as it were, to interview me about this newest project now out in the world, What We Sow on Cultivating Place. Next week, right here, listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communication support by Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.